Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello and welcome back to Brave New Teaching. Today we have part two in our three-part discussion series. Can we all just give a quick round of applause? Yay. Amanda and I are really excited. Today, we are going to bring you some troubleshooting strategies and tactics and like just what can go wrong or even things that don't necessarily go wrong when you're having a discussion in your classroom, but that just like come up and like maybe they're things that fly under the radar for us, but that we could be doing to better scaffold and better support things for our students. Hi, Amanda. Oh, hi, Marie. Hi, everyone listening. So excited for part two. I think, you know, part one, if you have not listened to it yet, um, you there's no need to listen to these in any particular order. But last week, we really kind of dove into what on earth we're looking to achieve with a discussion and what the different strategies are that could accomplish those different goals. And so today's is, <laughs> is going to be when everything goes wrong, when best laid plans go wrong, or, you know, you're just maybe just nervous to get started, or you've attempted one or two of these before and this same problem keeps happening. So you're like, oh, why bother going back at it? We want to give you confidence. Yeah. I mean, let's troubleshoot the things that take our energy away and make us shy away from doing discussions and practicing different sorts of listening and speaking skills in this way. We are excited. We are ready to rock and roll. So we're just going to go ahead and cue the music. You're listening to Brave New Teaching, a podcast for educators challenging the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a high school English teacher in Illinois. 
And I'm Marie, and I'm also a high school English teacher in Southern California. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. As we get started in today's troubleshooting tactics, we want to remind you if you missed last week's episode or if you were not already able to download the workbook that we've created for this three-part series, you're going to want to do that either today or at some point because we will have in there just some different points for you if you're like listening to this in the car or if you're listening to this while you're doing like some grading. Sometimes I'll have podcasts going while I'm entering scores, that sort of thing. And I can't immediately write stuff down. The workbook will help you remember the different things that you may have wanted. We've just got a little bit of structure there for you. Um, And it's just a great little resource to keep some things Yeah. So head to the show notes or bravenyteaching.com and you can get your hands on that for free because we like to give teachers free stuff. Who doesn't? I mean, because you're working hard enough as it is. So here's a little workbook and let me give you a little preview of what we're going to dig into. And we might dig into some a little deeper than others. This is a very organic conversation as always. Uh, But Marie and I really want to troubleshoot with you the following First up, we want to take a look at student fears and anxiety around speaking. This one, I have a lot of a lot of thoughts on Marie. Shocking. We want we, color, we want to color me about, surprised. <laughs> we want to talk about the kids who talk too much, the Marie's and Amanda's in your classroom. What um, the kids who are talking too little, and then the during the conversation. The, when the conversation starts to kind of go in circles or generalities and kids are speaking, but not really saying anything. Mm, there's just word babbly boo with no and, content. Yes. And they're so trying and you're like, oh my gosh, they're trying. And yeah, but we're not about really. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then also what to do with the listeners, right? Some of our systems we've talked about like Socratic seminar and fishbowl, some of these discussion techniques and strategies require some students to not be actively speaking at the same time. I mean, right. Mm -hmm. This is one person at a time talking what to do when we have those behavior issues of students who are not so patiently waiting their turn or not even waiting their turn who are totally tuned out. Yes. Yes. Who are just totally zonked gone from here and causing a problem (laughs) and causing a problem for whatever. Yeah. For whatever reason, right. These are the things that come up and, I am generally like, I always like to, when we talk about big group strategy things, I like to remind everybody that I teach classes of 40. So things that I'm talking about, I'm employing with Amanda's shaking her head with like a little bit of nausea and disbelief. And that's kind of what I've already, I've always known. I, I have taught smaller classes, but like Southern California, we're used to having pretty gargantuan class sizes. So when I start talking about some of these things, if you're going, oh, yeah, maybe with 20 kids. Yeah, but double it. And I'm still doing it with double. <laughs> yeah, but because Marie because I'm the first around. No, I'm the first one to hear something and be like scoffing at it. Like, yeah, that must be nice with, you know, 15 kids in the room. Like if I'm hearing a strategy that sounds amazing, but I cannot imagine with that many kids. Just remember that, like, I'm saying all of these with 40 giant children. In the room. And we're both speaking to experiences across the board in terms of grade level, student mixture of abilities in classrooms. I mean, yes. I've taught everything from ESL to gen ed classes, to co-talk classes, to AP classes. Marie's taught a huge variety as well. So we're bringing all the angles and all of the different experiences here. So this is not a conversation reserved for just 
one type of kid. I mean, it's no. Just, and, it's and not. some of this insight will work better for certain populations than for others. There are certain classroom communities than for others. Right. And like, I mean, we know, you know, that we just like to make the caveat to give permission to say that will work for my period two class. And it will not work for my period four class. Like that's okay. <laughs> it's yeah. not one size fits all. Yeah. So, and we know, once again, we know, you know, that teacher friends who are listening, it's just also good to hear sometimes that like, you're not alone in knowing that, you know, special snowflakes in this class are not the same as special snowflakes in the next class. Truth. And we're so happy to jump in. So let's go. This first one got me riled up. Yes. Okay. So yeah. Kids who are afraid of speaking, kids who have anxiety around speaking, how do we scaffold their work? How do we support them emotionally and academically? How, where do you even begin, Amanda? So I begin with a deep breath, right? Yes. My friend, Stacey Yamini, she, if you guys know her at Donut Love and Teachers, she always is breathing for me on Instagram and I breathe with her and I need, I need that breath. So here's what's happened a lot in my experience. And this is the great part about being on my own now, because no one's listening to this and going to fire me because I can say what I want. Um, <laughs> I, have, I, I have run into so many cases of students, whether they have an IEP, a 504, a loud parent, a whatever kind of experience that has a struggle or anxiety around speaking. And I have been told by, uh, by the adults, not the child, that I should be giving the student an alternate assignment and that I should be asking the student to not endure the painful anxiety that I will cause them by assigning a class discussion. Okay. I have many thoughts on this as well. I want to hear yours first. So number one, as an instructor, my goal is to never cause my children harm, but it's also to help them be successful in the world. And so when I hear that, I think, well, if you don't want your child to try this with me, whenever will they, whenever will they? Yes. Um, and, and so when I think, when you say like, where do you begin? There are two really like hardcore principles that took me a long time to learn. Um, and one of those is norm setting, right? We do a lot of class culture setting at the beginning of the year and like, you know, spontaneously here and there, but class discussions themselves need their own set of norms. And those norms might be a little bit different depending on the formality of the discussion, or if it's an assessment versus just kind of a casual conversation, but students participating in and being aware of and practicing and being held to the norms of what we expect from each other in a class discussion is really important because that's what creates a safe space. That's what helps students that have anxiety, students that have struggles around speaking feel a little bit safer every time, every time I hold up those norms and expectations, right? Like they can come knowing that they're not going to be attacked. They're not going to be hung up to dry. I'm not going to accuse them of something or put them on the spot. And right. I, I, those norms help cultivate that. And then to the second part of that though, is also practicing that same kind of discussion multiple times so that you can scaffold, like Marie said earlier for growth. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, those two pieces have to be in place in order to move a case manager, a student, a parent forward in this kind of confrontation. Well, yes. And that's what we hate to get to is the point where something feels like conflict or confrontation, because on one hand, who doesn't get a little bit nervous when they're going to do public speaking or who, I mean, you know, who hasn't felt that 
on the other hand, I cannot diminish the feelings of an individual. Never. Like I can't, I just can't, I do not know what it feels like to be in their shoes. I do not know when it comes like you, you mentioned IEPs and 504s and like special accommodations. When that accommodation becomes a modification that changes. Am I getting that right? Accommodations are what we do for diploma bound, right? Yep. Graduating students versus a modification to their, and, and those of you who are <laughs> listening if i'm getting this wrong please know you you know what i mean yeah, i think it's different state by state oh is it okay 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 i know what you're talking about yes. I, when we are modifying curriculum we are altering that student's path towards yes. graduation so when a speaking skill needs to be or a listening skill needs to be addressed there's only so much we can do before modifications are put in place. So like that is one thing I think to take into account. And we've talked about before when it comes down to like treating like an education team as an education team, especially when it comes to like meeting the needs of our special populations. So someone with learning needs that are different from the general ed students that might be in your classroom or if it's something that's like not diagnosed, I mean, like it just kind of it's case by case basis. Right. But like what I say when I'm, I'm talking about the education team is bringing in as many stakeholders as you can to make the best possible decision for a student that that we can often for high school, like the two of us teach high school. That includes the student in the conversation. I, I could understand where having a younger kiddo around might preclude having, you know, different types of conversations. That's kind of where I would start is like, what, what is this case by case? How severe is the student need? Is this something that is documented and part of an education plan? You know, like obviously like start there and then exactly what Amanda's saying. It starts with setting norms and not just setting norms and building community, but maintaining Mm -hmm. and following through consistently with expectations of classroom norms. And that doesn't only have to do with discussions. Students are going to know what is and isn't allowed by whom <laughs> in a classroom pretty quickly off the bat. And so our job as teachers, like, like when I talk about building classroom community, that's one of the biggest things is consistency, consistency, consistency across the board so that everybody knows exactly what to expect. Every knows exactly, everybody knows exactly what's expected of them. And then a lot of those anxieties go away. Now, I've been a teenager before. <laughs> I remember what it was to speak around or or to my entire class, right? To have to like memorize my note cards and then stand up and speak. And I have no problem public speaking now. 15-year-old Marie was very, very different in that way. And so I, I get that. I too, and I'm sensitive to that. That's where like, I would say one of the strategies that I employ because everybody gets a little bit nervous, except for like the very few who just can do it from a very early age on. It's to start small in your classroom. I get kids talking to each other in pairs and in small groups from day one, day two, and vary the groupings so they're talking to other people. So they've at least made points of contact with as many people in the room as possible before they have to have their voice be the only one that's heard by all 39 pairs of ears that surround them. A hundred percent. And I think any part of what you're saying actually is going to lead into... Uh the other things on our list for troubleshooting. So if we were to kind of just like open this up to speaking too much and speaking too little, I think for all of those students, plus the ones who are really struggling with the anxiety piece, I think creating predictable structures within your discussions is an incredibly helpful scaffold for 
everyone. And not something that I think people necessarily see from the outside or students even know to ask for. But I shared in the first an episode last week that I used to just kind of finish a piece of reading and say, let's have a discussion and call on kids. I mean, what a nightmare. What an absolute well, nightmare. And that's very, that's a very college style thing, right? Like, like it's, I think about know, that. Geez. <laughs> well, no, yeah. I mean, that's, that's very much like, where's, the, yes, where's the learning that's happening there? Where's the teaching right. that's happening there? Because there you're just asking children to go on the spot. I, th- I think that's appropriate in college. I don't think that's appropriate in a high school classroom. I think maybe at the end of the year of a senior level, maybe even AP, you know, like, yes. like when, when we are really bridging the gap into higher education, that's appropriate it is not appropriate for a general ed English classroom in a high school or a middle school, especially. No, it's not. And, and what's going to happen are those predictable patterns of mm-hmm. everyone who's doing their work is relied upon to provide all the information to the class. Like we just want to skip over that because when we're talking about classroom discussion, we're talking about growing the skills of being a stronger speaker, a speaker who can listen to the flow of the conversation, contribute something that adds to that conversation, can elevate that conversation to a new level, can ask questions of the people who have been part of that conversation. Like that's what we're trying to do with a class discussion for the most part. And I think that starting off in the beginning of the year with structure. So things like having a prep day, you know, one day where the questions are given ahead of time, an organizer of some sort, just like if you're going to write an essay, kids are given the space to think through what they'd like to say ahead of time and bring that to the discussion, make it open note, open Mm -hmm. book. You know, those are things that are not going to hurt you as the teacher. They're not going to hurt your evaluation process because the students who are prepared are going to feel more confident, are going to give better answers. And then the next level becomes when they get comfortable with that, then it's going to be starting to take some of that away and helping build that organic side. And we don't need to be there on discussion one. And it will, after a while, like the more kids get used to the prep days, it does start to kind of feel like everyone showed up to read answers off their homework. And that's not a well, conversation. And that's, well, no, that's, that's when you know you're ready for the next step, right? Like that's, that's, exactly. the, that's the telltale sign of like, okay, now it's time to take the training wheels and raise them up a little bit and then raise them up a little bit more and a little bit more. So let's talk about what some of those systems then really look like, like specifically to kiddos who are talking too much and or too little. All we all, we all know how that goes, right? The kid who will not stop talking. And then the kid who cannot get a word in edgewise either because they don't try or because they cannot get a word in past the kid who won't stop talking. Do you have a tried and true you want to start with? I have you know what? I have a super simple one that like yeah. it works best with older students, like 11th and 12th graders. They literally just have like a corner of their paper that is set aside for tallying how many times they speak. And when they get to three, they stop. That's it. So yeah. like reserve how many times you speak. It's up to them. I don't have to be marking how many times they speak. They've got it down on their paper. That's one of the things last week we were talking about. Parlay is great for something like that. Mm-hmm. If, if you want to know more about that, I would suggest listening to last week's episode because we talk at length about how much we love parlay <laughs> for discussions, both in class and virtual. But yeah, something really simple that has kids keep track or even just tokens, right? Like like if, if you need it to be manipulative, you can have little, I don't know, gems or I'm thinking of like the little... Yeah. Little button things or poker chips. Yes. That everybody gets two or three and 
once they've used theirs, they're done or post-its or like whatever you want it to be. That's, that's going to help them keep track of their own speaking. That's a great, quick, cheap and easy tactic and something that you can always keep around. What's something that you've used? Yeah. So I think it goes without saying that this absolutely has to be part of the norm setting. Mm -hmm. Um, I love to use the phrase, even on my rubric, sometimes if this is what we're evaluating would be the phrase does not dominate or withdraw. I kind of want the students oh, that's all really good. to be, yeah, in the, and it's not mine. I, I It's so <laughs> old. I can't remember where it came from, um, but I, I kind of teach them in the process of setting norms that we want to be somewhere between domination and absence. And, and it, we can definitely use tokens too, as part of that. Again, it's another great scaffold. Yes. Um, and then my favorite way of doing this has been in, at least I can speak to Socratic seminar in Socratic seminar. Again, this is not my original idea. Um, I learned this early in my career. I typically would do, run seminar as a two day process. And I split the class in half, which would be great for you, Marie, because you have mm-hmm. massive classes. And so, I have to, I have to. Yeah. yeah right. Cause how do 40 people talk? What no? Okay. No, I, that, so, there's no time. Yeah. Even so, my classes at their at their biggest were around 30, 31. So we were definitely doing two days. Um, and so my inside circle was talking, and my outside circle had a number of different jobs. For the most part, I really tried to keep kids in one particular role, and that was the role of a coach. So the inside outside are sitting right behind and in front of one another. And so if you're inside the circle, the person sitting behind you is your coach. And that person is like a hundred percent responsible for you. And they're keeping track of how many times you speak, how many times you're using evidence, your, you know, all kinds of things like that. I have a little list. And then I split the period in half so that there's a halftime and at halftime, the players consult with their coaches about how they're doing so far. So I really don't have to be the one giving reminders and the ones who are in the circle can kind of of just like be in it. And then during that halftime period is when students can be reflective halfway through the discussion rather than all the way at the end. And so once they've talked with their coaches, I do a little debrief and then they pop on into the second half. And, um, I just, I kind of ask for someone to start the conversation, maybe who hasn't spoken before. And if I need a gentle reminder about that, I'll say it out loud at that half point. Um, but that's really been effective for students troubleshooting that issue on their own. So when that just made me think of something that I like, I've called it coaching or I think I've called it like sideline coaching, or also because I have so many kiddos, I've called it like their own personal hype team Love it. <laughs> where they can like, like one person's kind of keeping track of their uh, engagement and participation. The other one's kind of like feeding them things to say, you know, and they kind of like, so I love that idea. And you can also take that whole idea and have it even be like a tap in tap out sort of a thing too. If there's like little groups of three or four or whatever. It just depends on like what kind of a conversation you're, you're wanting kids to have and like how it's supposed to go, but teaming kids up and helping them support each other does so many amazing things. It helps take the pressure off of the one who's speaking because they don't have to think of everything and keep track of everything. And, 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 and it also builds teeny tiny pockets of community within a larger community, right? Because they get to work as teams and they're working together and they're helping each other. And then it also gives kids something to do with their hands while they're watching and listening and waiting. Yes, absolutely. Yes. No, I've had to every Socratic seminar I've ever done. I had to have at least two prompts, at least two things. So like 
because otherwise it gets wicked repetitive. And so kids have to know what's coming. Yeah. We have to like split it all up and have a whole thing. And they do end up seeing both because they're like coaching one and then participating in the other. But it's uh, it's hard with large classes, but you just have to then really make if you're going to spend two full class periods because your class is large enough that it necessitates two separate, let's say, Socratic seminars or fishbowl discussions, then make it really count. Right. Like then take the time to make sure that the kiddos who are the audience, I would say the audience, would that be the listeners? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. OK, the 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 non-participants. Right. Give them something legit to do that's not just take notes when you hear this, or it is take notes when you hear this, that, and the other, and analyze the conversation that you're hearing. Like that could be a whole nother thing when it comes to listening skills is their analysis of what they're hearing. So, I mean, there are a lot of rich little pieces that we can use that I think our focus goes so heavily, at least my focus always goes towards, let's make sure kids are comfortable, make sure that they're prepared, blah, 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 blah. But I, but, and I'm missing opportunities like, Kid, the other kids can be really working on their listening skills and their listening analysis and that sort of a thing while they're just not part of the actual conversation and they're listening from the outside. Yeah. And I think you're kind of also answering that question about what to do with the kids who are on the outside who are not listening. Yes. And I think the answer that you're 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 dancing around or actually you're saying is they need a meaningful way yes. to be part of the conversation as listeners because just saying listening skills doesn't mean anything to kids. And even for us, that is never the focus of our PD, our department meetings. We're never talking about how to make kids better listeners. And for me, the listening component, like that skill is really hard to evaluate, which is probably why we don't talk about it very much. Um, well, but I it's a soft skill. It's a soft skill. So how are you going to evaluate that? Well, here's some ideas. Go Amanda. <laughs> well, I mean, look at what you and I do, right? Our podcast would be a total failure if you were talking, but I was not listening and I just jumped back in, right? Like I think in terms of, and again, why I love seminar versus like giving a speech is because yeah. it requires listening in order for the conversation to move. And so that's one of the things that I've started asking my listening group to do is some kind of chart or visual of the conversation and asking my students to visualize, is this conversation moving? And is it moving in any direction in particular, or is it going in circles? And I've, I've had my listeners, if they're not coaching or doing a, a job, like we've talked about before, mm-hmm. I have them diagram the conversation and That's then, cool. and then present it right to the speakers and say, I'm listening to this conversation, but all I hear you is circling this idea over and over and over again. And so then the good ones, the students kind of are able to show us a map and say, you started here, then you went here, then you went back here, then you went over there. And I'm like, you were listening, you charted this entire conversation. And then that skill translates into when they're in the middle again, right? Because they know what it's like to listen to a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they've so, given, they've given the really rich feedback. They've heard somebody else give the really rich feedback. They've yeah. reser- received the really rich feedback. And then they're able to like, turn it around to be like, where and visualize. And that works really well for our kids who are like lean more towards visual and are able to, that's so cool. I mean, and I grade it. I grade yeah, it. Yeah. It's graded. Listening is a skill and it will be assessed. That's another thing. Kids think like listening as usually like, participation points or something really, again, soft. But if you're going to go through and do a seminar, you're going to do 
a discussion and you're going to be all in, be all in. Like do it. Yes. And that's something I had to learn the hard way many, 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 many times. Like, and even when I was teaching theater, when we're presenting or performing a scene that we've workshopped and worked on, blah, 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 blah. The audience needed something to do like really, and not just like, Oh, evaluate blah. No, like, specific prompting. So one thing that I, I really like your diagramming. I can't believe we've never talked about that before, but one thing that I have done actually starts with like the beginning scaffolding and prep when we're practicing, I I have, I call them like discussion placemats or something. It's literally just a piece of paper, but I laminated it. So I call it a placemat that has different types of uh, sentence frames and sentence starters for furthering conversation. Some are questions, some are clarification, or, you know, like furthering the conversation with questions for clarification, questions for understanding, questions for uh, more or something like that, you know, like, and yeah. then productive and polite disagreement, agreement and adding on or something. I mean, yes. they're better. I love that. And their sentence frames. And then kiddos who are participating can have those in front of them. And when we're practicing, and even when I'm facilitating and they're doing like a legit, like, let's call it a summative Socratic seminar, they have those prompts still there that they've seen before. And I just say, everybody look at your prompts, you know, like when it, when it lulls, we can say, look at your prompts. What can you use here? You know, and and they can keep the conversation going. And then the listeners have the same prompts that they're listening for, or they're listening for versions of to see then and evaluate and analyze what that did for the conversation. So it gives them those real, I mean, it's same sort of a thing, just in different formats. And it gives them really specific and scaffolded prompting for their listening. And that takes away a lot of the behavior issue. That reminds me of almost exactly what we used to do with, uh, we would call them transitions. Mm -hmm. So we, we would ask students not to just say something, but to transition between right ideas. And one of our norms was to agree and disagree with ideas, not people. And so those sentence frames and transitions were really helpful. And they also asked students to use each other's names. And I would make name tags at the seminar because I also got into the mistake where students were like, oh, what was your name again? And it's November. And I'm like, what, like, how do you not know? Okay. I know. And you're like, what rock have you been under Um, in this room? But okay. (laughs) But it all, it all, it all comes together. Like to be a good listener, you know, is to acknowledge the person who spoke before you, their idea, their name, and then to move into your own idea. And it's going to feel a little stiff at the beginning when you're using these frames or students are just starting. Um, but it really is magnificently different than kids just saying, uh, yeah. And yeah, this too. Oh yeah. Me too. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. I agree yeah, with, that. I agree with that. And, and you're like, because, because it's right. Well, and, and well, and my question is what is that? What do you yes, agree with? Exactly. This person just said three things. What are you elaborating on? And that's, that's all listening. And so that's where I think it helps to like point out to the students that this is how this is both speaking and listening, because what you say shouldn't just be like a one-off comment about gladiators when we're talking about mythology. I mean, I think that that's helping them see the relationship between speaking and listening as something real and part of a good conversation, which they have all the time. Yeah. What, what is adolescence other than constantly being in conversation with other adolescents? I mean, that's what it is. And they know what it's like to have a bad listener as a friend. Oh, for sure. Or, or, or just that person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some, some of them are that person. And I think uh-huh. that that takes a little bit of reflecting. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think that what we've kind of gotten down to is that some of our best ways to troubleshoot are to start 
ahead with more scaffolding than they could ever need so that all you have to do is take scaffolds off, right? As you yes. go versus triage and go back and be like, oh my God, I have to teach this. And like, and then you feel like you're behind yourself. Like, wouldn't it be great to be like, oh, that was way too easy for you guys. Awesome. Tomorrow we're doing it this way, you know, like yes. just to peel things away as you go. And then also to really mindfully and purposefully work on listening skills. Those are two of the biggest things, because if those listening skills are in place, a lot of the fear and anxiety will go away because they have something else to focus on, right? They've got like different, it's not just them. They're listening to somebody else to be able to talk and, and all of these things happen over time. And there's a gradient and, 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 and. Okay. So what's so rewarding when kids feel like they can do this? Yeah. Okay. So let's say that we get them to a good point, a point where we're rolling Right. Yep. And everyone's talking. Yeah, they are. No one's really saying yes. it. Let's, let's get to that. Like this point where, and, and I'm going to give all of them the benefit of the doubt because bless their hearts. Like they're just really trying to, to do what we're asking them to do, which is right. to up, but they're, they're speaking absent from <laughs> the critical thinking that needs to also happen. You know, where do you, I mean, I'm someone that likes to be in the background as much as possible and say as little as possible. I mean, where do you speak up? How do you guide students? What do you do, Marie, when we're talking? Uh, it depends. It depends. Let's, let's say that this is Let's just go to the most extreme. Like this is a summative. This is a Socratic seminar. Students have come and they are debating or just not debating. In fact, I always say you're discussing, not debating uh, a, an essential question. And they are all just kind of dancing around. It could be things. this. And it could be that. Well, and some people think blah. And yeah. blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's where I'll say, okay, let's look at the third column. I want you to disagree. I want you to find something and find somebody in this circle with whom you disagree with something that they have said. Use one of our frames. Like, I'll just stop the conversation. Take your notes, circle the frame that you're going to use, write the point that it was, who would like to begin. And then we literally say, Angie, I heard when you said blah, blah, blah. And I understand that that meant blah, blah, blah. I disagree on this point, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody, you know, like I literally make them just go through and then as awkward and clunky as it is, it takes the pressure off of disagreeing because they get nervous. They get nervous. They don't want to offend each other. They don't want to be like that one. They get all like, oh, and it's like, nope, just read through the whole frame, take the whole thing. And we just look at that column and then it goes. And and, and I mean, all conversations are going to ebb and flow. So sometimes I keep some more questions in my pocket. I also have kids maybe from the outside pose a question that they can see after they like run it by me because they just need to get more specific, right? Like that's then also where you want to ask for evidence. Like, okay, what makes you think that? Like the, what makes you think that? Or like, show me where you found that in the text or show, show me the article that said that or blah, 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 blah. Those will circle us back to specificity. I feel totally fine jumping into the conversation when I can see that they can't see the forest through the trees. Because they're young. I even, even seniors, like I can remember being in some of my like freshman year of college classes and thinking to myself, I have no idea where this conversation is going. Like not knowing where, and and that's okay. Right. Like sometimes it just takes a facilitator. It's one more reminder that this is why we practice. Yes doing them multiple times throughout the year. Don't just have one Socratic seminar and expect it to be great. Amazing. Yes. 
like have five <laughs> or six and do it all the time. Um, and I, I agree, Marie, I would do the same thing. I, that is when I hop in, when I feel, you know, we don't have unlimited time for kids to just talk in circles um, and sending them back to the text. Because if we are talking about a summative and they are looking at the essential question, likelihood is they've read a couple poems, some articles, a few TED talks, a central novel or lit circle novels. Yes. And there is plenty of text there, um, but students get wrapped up in the energy of their ideas and forget about the text. And, And for me, the text is what gives their opinions color and validity or renders them invalid, which is where we get some of those disagreements. And so that is definitely for me where I push them. Um, Once in a while, like if we're not doing a a synthesis type of like big, I've done a couple of seminars where students are just reading a series of articles on a topic, like right around this time of the year, we do a Socratic seminar about culture and where to draw the line in costuming. Yes. Uh, there are so many great articles in the news of, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, a team of teachers all dressed up as mariachis with mustaches and ponchos and sombreros. And like, like I have articles like that in there. And then I have, you know, really just, I have a whole bunch of articles addressing, right around the question of to what extent can we cross cultural lines and costume? And so talk about not wanting to offend each other. You know, right. my, the, the, these students are so careful. They're like, well, if they're young and don't know better then it's the parents' fault, but if the parents don't know, then it's not really their fault. And like, you know, they're trying to be so careful to not hurt anyone's feelings. And then they say things that make me go, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I've also found that like evidence is great, but also being prepared with some definitions, like factual, like this is truth. So now what's your answer? So my students walked into that conversation, not really grasping what is cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. So I took a timeout and said, this is what cultural appropriation is. I put it up on the screen, dictionary definition. This is the definition of cultural appropriation. Using that definition, let's move forward and be more specific. And that was a huge shift for us. So anytime we can define the thing that they're struggling to put their opinion on, that can be really helpful because having a bunch of articles doesn't necessarily mean they understand the definitions of the tenants or the pillars um, that they're working on in that conversation. And I would say the specificity along with like your scaffold of a definition and practicing economy of words. So asking a student say, you know, like everybody in the circle, if we, if we are getting to a weird place where we're all just kind of babbling and nothing's actually happening, then everybody's going to need to come up with, that's okay to pause the conversation. Like it's always okay to pause the conversation and answer this question in no more than one sentence. And it cannot be a run on. Right. And then they have to be direct. Like it has to be an answer or at least it practices again. We're always going to come back to the practicing. So there you have it, friends. This is at least some of our tried and true strategies and techniques for just kind of handling what can go wrong and being proactive in handling student fears and anxieties and supporting them along the way, social and emotional supports, as well as learning academic skill supports are equally important. Like they're all equally important because there's the whole person that's sitting in your classroom, right? It's like a whole entire, and and speaking and listening is a full body 
mind body situation <laughs> more so than writing more so than reading it's it's all of the above and so always feel out your class see what they need from you and start with more than they could possibly need and then like the worst thing that could happen then is like oh that was too easy excellent right. Right. yes excellent build their confidence by making it too easy for something that is so subjective as speaking and we hope that this episode really just leans on you a little bit, puts a little bit of pressure on you to reignite that confidence in having these discussions. There are a lot of pressures in this post, not, not even post this exiting COVID, Mid. I hope world, um, yeah, whatever it is, but like we need this skill more than we ever have. Our students are living in a world of online keyboard warriors. They're living in a world where adults dig their heels into one side just because we're living in a world where, where adults are digging their heels in without listening to evidence or even having the mindfulness to listen to anyone who has a different idea. We have shut people out from so many conversations because from the beginning, we just don't even want to hear it. And yep. we're, and we're, that's what, that's what kids are watching us do right now. And they need to be better than that. They need to feel that when they walk into a classroom an academic space that they can engage in, like you said, discussion and not debate and come out the other side having more ideas, being more open-minded, not being right or wrong. And that's that I can't even speak to how important that is right now and how dire of a need it is. Well, and, and discussion, frankly, like there's a reason also that we're doing a whole three week series on discussion. What were we missing the most when students were hybrid, when we were virtual, when we were in and out, and some of us are still experiencing that it was the community of learning. It was a learning community. And like, as two public school classroom teachers by trade, we obviously feel pretty strongly I, not obviously, we feel very strongly that students are in a school and in a classroom with other kids because learning is a communal process. And part of that communal process is talking and listening and, and building empathy by getting to know other people and understanding various perspectives and points of view. Because if it weren't important to have a communal experience with learning, we wouldn't have classrooms. Like it just wouldn't, no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have any of it. And it obviously like things work differently for different people, but like for the mass majority yeah. <laughs> of humans, this function of education is communal and it's with other people. And that's where discussion comes in. Like you got to discuss. Otherwise, why are we all in a room together? That's and, and we know it's hard. I mean, there's yes. a lot that can go wrong. There are, you know, we didn't even get to, you know, when students say inappropriate things. Or oh when yeah. People, we didn't say oh, that. Yeah, oh yeah. my gosh. There's, there's a lot, right. I mean, we send us a DM. We'll, we'll tell you stories off the air. You know, like there, there's, <laughs> there's a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot of stress involved for you in orchestrating this, especially the first couple of times. The benefit is that it really does pay off your work in doing them frequently by the end of the year. Some of my best like last days of school. This is what we do on the last day of school is we discuss the year long essential question as our final exam. And by that point, 
the way that the conversation flows. I mean, I have left so many years in tears. Walking and, well, you hear them grow in yes. a Socratic differently than you witness it in writing. And, and it's totally. amazing to watch your writers grow, but when you hear their confidence and the way that they connect ideas together and you see that skill grow. It's just incredible. And like, you get like to witness them say, you know, the books you taught me and this lesson that I remember, and this moment that I had when we did this, all of this helps me think now about this question differently than it did nine months ago. And you're like, Oh my God, I gave birth to you. You know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth Ew. the pain and agony <laughs> of, of the pregnancy of these, <laughs> these all these discussions can be so, they can be so hard. So we don't, we don't want you to think we say this lightly, like, you know, we just throw off a discussion whenever we want and they're flawless. Cause no, they're not. <laughs> no, true. lots of weird stuff happens. Yes. Well, friends, we, this is kind of where we have to, like we said, we have to cut ourselves off. We have to round out this troubleshooting episode because again, there are so many things, but like one of the biggest things is being proactive and setting norms and scaffolding, um, to head off a lot of things at the past. And we always have our, our special considerations, but for the most part, we can get a lot of the lion's share of troubleshooting done by being proactive. And if you have not already done so, make sure that you download the workbook for these three episodes. Like Amanda said, you can listen to them in any order, really. It's just kind of there, once again, to scaffold for you so you can take away the little nuggets because we do jump around in our conversations about discussions. And it's okay. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah, because we just want to share the, the best things that we've got and sometimes they pop up organically. So thank you so much for listening. We cannot wait for next week's episode, which is going to be a play-by-play commentary on... Uh, recording of a former class of Amanda's. We're going to go through and just kind of give like how to shape feedback and things that we might say, and maybe even what she did say in the moment. And then also how to use really specifically how to use these discussions as assessment. Um, And so we're excited to uh, bring that one to you. Same time, same place next week. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.